Are you ready to ride into our final furlong? After 400 episodes, can I sing the theme song? Like it or not, I guess you just did. I can't believe we've written 400 of those theme tunes. (laughs) Written. (laughs) Composed. I don't know, (laughs) Julia. Wrought. Crafted. I still remember the, like the really, really old ones, like should I audition for X Factor Three? Why are my kids banned from visiting me? That's the it's pretty cold, the isn't it? The classic ones. That's quite mean, yeah. I think the best one I can remember is um, Why Are Stools Called Stools? As in bowel movement stools. That's the classic. And the one where Ollie sings "Kiss from a Rose." Oh, yeah. oh, I like the one about the artist, but I can't remember what the joke is. I know the second half is silent. That's the joke, Martin. So here we are, the final yes. episode. Yeah. We've really appreciated all of the lovely emails you've been sending us about your answer me this, feelings and experiences. It's great to hear how we have changed your lives in even very small ways. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bex has written in to say, every single time I make a carbonara, I hear Martin's <laughs> voice saying lots of black pepper, lots and lots of black pepper. <laughs> wow, what a legacy, Martin. That's you true. proud? That's true. Yeah, I mean, it's better than your brother's recipe for carbonara, which is like peas and sherry and random crap. Yeah, probably pepperami <laughs> in there. Yeah. I still sing sweet potato fries every time I make potato fries. Do I do. I think everyone who has ever heard this show who walks past a branch of giraffe goes, branch of giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I still, whenever I uh, apply talcum powder to my genitals, I also think of Helen's ghost penis story. Oh, God. <laughs> Harrowing stuff. Uh, something that uh, Martin quotes quite a lot is something that you said, Ollie, in the early days mm. when we were asked about the difference between flammable and inflammable. Oh, yes. And uh, you said, it's certainly terroristing. Yeah. I also, since we did that research into paper towels and hand dryers and stuff, I no longer use any of those. Uh, just wipe my wet hands on my clothes. Ah, well, that's a positive change, isn't it? I mean, not necessarily yeah. for anyone who has to shake hands with you, but for the world. Also, whenever I see people in a park throwing bread to the ducks, I don't, mm. but I want to shout out, no, don't do it. It's not good for them. It's going to blow up in their stomachs, yeah. Uh, I've also enjoyed hearing your feedback about uh, what has happened since we answered one of your questions. Rachel from Birmingham says, I called in about 12 years ago asking if there was still a calling for shepherds as that was my childhood dream job. I am now da 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 a nurse. So I suppose not too far <laughs> off realizing that dream just looking after a different species of flock. Yeah. Okay. My wife watches the Yorkshire vet a lot, so I walk often when I walk through the sitting room there's a prolapse sheep sanus on my TV. Mm. And the two jobs don't look too similar. Like I I would want my nurse to look after me more sympathetically than that. Here's a beautiful bit of feedback from Gary in Amsterdam who says, I'm gutted that it's finishing, but what a ride. I introduced your podcast to a girl I was dating once. She was quite upset by the phrase, babies can go fuck themselves. Which I think came out of your mouth, Ollie. Wow. That was one of mine, yeah. You said, I don't like babies. Babies can go fuck themselves. Although you seem to have really enjoyed becoming a parent in the intervening years. Yeah. To be fair, I never said I will hate having children. I was just like, other people's babies are really annoying. Why are they in the pub on my Facebook feed in my face? Like, you know, now now I've got some, it's different. I think also you were thinking, when I have children, I'll probably enjoy them when they're like eight, but not when they're babies. Yes, that was the context. Yes, exactly. Babies are boring. Babies don't do anything. It's harder to love a baby. I can actually say, now that Toby is just about to turn two, his first year, I found it a bit hard to love him. Not because I don't, but because there's less to love. Like, there is just less. Like, now he's got a personality. Now I know who he is, you know? Gary says, I'm not going to blame you for the breakup, uh, but it definitely didn't help. I'm happier being single anyway. Oh, um, good, I guess. Thanks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thank 
Thank you, Carrie. I'm going to miss this. I'm going to really miss that kind of feedback. Hi, Helen, Ollie and Martin the Soundman. It's Carla from Banbury. Thank you so much for the podcast over the years, all your hard work you've put into it. I've listened every single day for about seven years, so you're a huge part of my life. Thank goodness for your back catalogue. Answer me this. If you could have 400 of something, what would it be? Ooh, surprisingly difficult question because I love Daxons, but I would want maximum two. I, there's something about getting old that I'm thinking yeah. differently about this question to how I would have answered this in the days. But when we, when we started out, I'd have said, oh, I'd like 400 bottles of wine. I'd like a big wine mm. cellar or I'd like 400 cars or whatever the thing would be. Whereas now, genuinely... 400 jars of mayonnaise. <laughs> well, it is more like that. Like, I, I'm thinking practical terms. I'm thinking, well, I would like a lifetime supply of mayonnaise because I would definitely get through it, but I would like to be posted one jar a month. That's what I would like. Mm. I wouldn't like to be given a delivery of 400 of anything. Um, apart from, possibly, I was thinking <laughs> contact lenses. So I do wear daily contact lenses. So I, I guess I could confidently order 400 contact lenses and I'd have space to store them. That's quite boring, isn't it? You could just buy those. I've got an answer for this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And it's a callback to something we've talked about in the show. I would take 400 assorted buttons. You know, someone else's button jar that they've accumulated over years. You've got a great variety of buttons because you can't just buy that in most places unless you spend a lot of time poking around old markets and things, Mm. which are fewer and fewer. Yes, decorations generally, um, you know, adornments. 400 400 ornaments. Okay, what about 400 Christmas decorations? Like really nice. Too many. Like Harvey Nichols Mm -hmm. standard Christmas decorations. Yeah, but you could give half away. I think the rule is you can't give half away. I'd take 20 of those decorations. Mm. 400, I think they would all just end up looking like crap in the context of being adjacent to one another. I did inherit from my father 400 plastic toothpicks, which was too many. (laughs) I didn't know what to do with them, Um, but they're small. So I did try keeping them and then they went in the bin. I just felt bad because obviously like landfill, you know. Yeah. Your kids can't really play with those, can they, without spiking their eyes out? <laughs> there was no, and it just felt a bit weird to put on Facebook, like, who wants 400 plastic toothpicks left to me by my dead father? Like, it's not, it's just a weird... To inheritance. I didn't want someone coming up and negotiating over the toothpicks, yeah. And then the other one was, I didn't. I haven't counted them, it's probably more like 2,000, but about 2,000 paper clips. Wow. Mm. Which is fine, because they do all fit in a drawer. And they don't go off. But it's, it's more than a lifetime supply. For a home office worker. You need to get into making paperclip necklaces. That'll take up a few hundred at least. (laughs) Get the kids into it. Be the new loom bands in your household. Hello, Helen, Ollie and Martin, the sound man. This is Hannah from Glasgow. Thank you, because Answer Me This was the first podcast that I ever really loved. It's been my favourite for so, so long. Literally like 10 years. Before I ask my question, I just want to say I love you guys so much. Thank you so much for so 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 many hours of fun i've loved it so so much and i don't want to cry so helen and ollie answer me this how does skydining work um i saw maura higgins from previous love island seasons on our instagram stories doing skydining how do they get the food to them is there there's not a sky kitchen is there and what happens if you like drop stuff so helen and ollie answer me this um okay love you bye Sky dining. Mm. I was not familiar with that until this question. Thank you, Hannah. No, I'd never heard of it either. No. By God, it looks terrifying. Not for you? Not one of the adventure experiences you're going to be trying? The idea is you are 40 metres above ground level in a big suspended platform. 
with yeah. 21 other people seated around a table, secured in place by aircraft standard safety belts. Uncomfortable seats, they say. <laughs> Comfortable seats. Whilst the whole table rotates 180 degrees in the wind. No! It looks like those, um, you know, those theme park rides where you're harnessed into a seat, but your legs are dangling free. Yes, Nemesis. E.g. But instead of like getting the instant thrill that your body then requires when you feel that lurching feeling in your stomach, you're then supposed to eat for an hour. My stomach would be just playing absolute havoc in that situation. Well, you can't go to the toilet from up there. No, well, you can, but you wouldn't want to stand underneath. I, I noticed on flydining.com, one of the practitioners of sky dining, mm. that they are also looking for people who want to franchise it. Yes. It says... You can call it a white money-making machine. What does that mean? I suppose that's like uh, white labelling is the idea. So like it, it is a franchise, but you can put it anywhere in the world. And it's it's mostly used for events. So although there is, um, I'm not sure if it ever actually permanently opened because of COVID and everything, although you'd imagine it's quite a COVID safe way to eat. <laughs> uh, but there is a permanent one in Las Vegas, as you might expect. Um, uh, and I yes. think Dubai, I mean, in both those places, that's not surprising. Uh, but everywhere else in the world where it's popped up, Paris and London and Tel Aviv and whatever, in all those places, it's been a temporary thing really as a kind of marketing social media thing, which is probably mm. why, Hannah, you saw Maura from Love Island on it mm. as an influencer. It says best selfie and photo session potential. I don't want to drop my phone 150 feet and kill someone. Or just smash my phone. I don't want to smash someone's brain or my phone. Yeah. So when, when Hannah says what would happen if you drop stuff, yeah, you could kill someone. That's what would happen. <laughs> That's why we don't have restaurants suspended from platforms in the sky. But uh, in terms of how it works, in terms of the food, I mean, it's the same as actually when you eat in, uh, you know, a business class cabin of an aeroplane. Like all the food is prepared on the ground and then it's taken up. How do they serve it to you? Because they can't walk around the table. <laughs> so the two waiters are strapped into the middle of the platform. Hmm. Everyone's got a bungee jump cord on in case it all goes horrifically wrong. And they hmm. can sort of circumnavigate their way around the table because they're in the middle. They're like in the in the, the hole in the middle of the O. So they can go around surfing everyone. Oh. It's actually quite good from a service point of view. You don't need to worry about attracting their attention. They're right there all the fucking time. I am looking at the menus. Uh, they do uh, breakfast, brunch, lunch, afternoon tea, cocktails and dinner. And for the breakfast, which is um, £79 per person for 45 minutes. Which isn't bad. Are you pay for, I mean, I wouldn't, but one would pay 50 quid to go up on a platform 40 metres into the air. Yeah. So I sort of, I think it's a reasonable price plus breakfast. Would you want to eat shakshuka and drop a bit of cold poached egg Ugh. 150 feet onto some unsuspecting person just trying to go about their morning? It says that sky dining is a fusion of two most favourite components, food and adventure. Now, just because you like two things a lot doesn't necessarily mean you want to combine them. <laughs> As I think we've mentioned before when we had food and sex questions. Yeah. Real life isn't nine and a half weeks. Yeah, I think adrenaline for me is not necessarily the accompaniment to eating right. that I enjoy. <laughs> but a view is. Like, I understand the thing of going to a restaurant on the top of a skyscraper. It's just, I just don't need the, the, the thrill. What I found really hilarious is I found um, from 2009, the first time that they applied to have a permanent site in Las Vegas, Steve Wynn, the hotelier, opposed it on the basis that it was, quote, a carnival attraction, unsuited to the strip. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, what? You know, people in M&M costumes is fine. You know, a roller coaster hotel, that's fine. Not a platform where people eat a Michelin-starred meal. What's wrong with you? What I wouldn't like is not being able to leave. So not yes. being able to pop to the loo, not being able to get away from a tedious dining companion. Yes. I'd feel very much like I was part of the experience in a way that I wouldn't be comfortable with. And actually, that thing of the service staff being there all the time as well. I know that some people who are drunk enough 
or from a certain class of society feel very comfortable with that. You know I don't like that. Always makes me awkward. Like, I just feel like I need to keep engaging them, even though I'm paying them, even though they're there to service me. I feel like I can't relax till they fuck off. I don't want them there the whole time. I just want to be politely neglected by service staff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come and check in me every 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, check I'm still breathing. Yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, you might not be uh, on skydining mm. platforms. And I don't know what happens then either. Like, how quickly can they get it to the ground if someone, you know, has a coronary or or someone needs the Heimlich manoeuvre replied? You know, what do you do? How do you, maybe you just tighten the bungee string. Let's get a bird to do it. That would be cool, actually. If, you, if they trained a homing pigeon <laughs> to come to the skydining platform and deliver your dessert, that would be a nice finale, I feel this evening of magic in the sky that'll be cool enough on the ground <laughs> probably right hello helen ollie and martin this is david originally from the scottish borders now living in east Dulwich in london via edinburgh so yesterday we went on a wonderful march and then afterwards we went to this news agent to get drinks before sitting in soho square and listening to some speeches but when i went to the news agents one of the only bottles of water that they had was fiji water so i'd bought it i'd never had it before and i tried it it wasn't anything particularly special but Helen, Ollie and Martin, answer me this. How did Fiji water become this massive, like, fashion statement? Because all the celebrities that I have seen have had Fiji water at some point. Uh, Well, uh, it became a massive fashion statement with a very targeted plan to make it thus. Mm. Because I think Fiji water doesn't really do conventional advertising. That's right. I've never seen a TV ad for Fiji water, but I've seen plenty of it at high-profile events. Right, exactly. So the brand was born in the early 90s when a businessman called David Gilmore, not the Pink Floyd David Gilmore, made a deal with the Fijian government, which meant for 99 years he was allowed to tap this uh, deep aquifer full of delicious Fiji water and market it under the Fiji water brand name. Uh By the way... (laughs) They have copyrighted the word Fiji in a lot of countries, which seems a bit fucked up given that that is the name of our place. Also, if it was such a good idea, why weren't the Fijian government doing this themselves in the first place, since they own the water? Well, it's like a pretty uh, corrupt place. This, This is the sad thing. So there's a large proportion of Fijians who do not have access to safe water. Mm. And yet you've got this prick with his aquifer. This guy, David Gilmore, one of his businesses was hotels. So he could use those connections to make sure that Fiji water was in the rooms of all of the luxury hotels and being Uh. handed out in all of them with like that little thing hanging around its neck telling you it's like $12 if you want to drink it and also resorts and spas. So it had this reputation of like being luxury, being very pure. They did a lot of product placement in films and at uh, events. So like fashion weeks and red carpets. I remember in 2019, Fiji water girl went viral at the Golden Globes, because she was standing on the red carpet with a tray of Fiji water behind all the celebs getting their photos taken. Right. So that's the kind of shit they pull. And they also created this myth that like, oh, look at this water, so pure from Fiji. Oh, paradise, untouched paradise, even though it's somewhere that had been colonised. <laughs> Repeatedly. And now exploited by yeah. a businessman. And then in 2004, uh, a rich couple called Linda and Stuart Resnick bought the brand. They like own a lot of shit, like Teleflora. Uh, apparently, they're also amongst the largest tree nut farmers in the USA. Mm-hmm. And then they marketed the fuck out of it to make it even more ubiquitous. 
And the thing is also, like, they've come up on a, on a wave of bottled water in the US particularly. Like, bottled water is such a huge industry and such a fucking terrible one. Like, I don't want to harp on about it too much. It's so unnecessary, isn't it? I know. It's really unnecessary because drinking water, except Flint being a high-profile example of where it's not drinkable, generally the water in the US that comes out of your taps is drinkable and this is an environmentally disastrous industry. Yeah. But also, like, even even in the UK, like, David talked about it being the only one left in the news agents. But I was thinking when I heard his accent when he said where he was from, I was thinking, well, Highland Spring. Like, if you're going to buy mineral water, at least Highland Spring, it, for my money, much tastier than all the other ones in the, U- in the UK that you can get and is at least from here. Like, the idea of shipping it over from Fiji, never mind yeah. the environmental cost of the bottle. Just that, just the air miles, as opposed to one brought down from Scotland. Like Buxton. The plastic for the bottles has come to Fiji from China. So when Fiji water are like, look at us, we're creating jobs in Fiji. The economy mm. is stimulated uh, and, and we're using local materials. They're not. Like everything is shipped in and um, they have not kept up their environmental promises within Fiji and, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> recycling stuff. Also, quite a high, although legal, level of arsenic <laughs> in the water. 6.31 micrograms per liter. Apparently um a safe level is 10 micrograms, but that's still a lot of arsenic for what is advertised as such pure water. Yeah. I imagine Justin Timberlake wouldn't be as pleased to pose with arsenic girl at the Golden Globes red carpet. I don't know. I think there's a certain kind of uh, gothic uh, <laughs> menace with arsenic girl. Yeah. Helena Bottom Carter would be all over it. Don't get me wrong. There's a market. Answer me, this podcast has really gone. 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 Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey guys, this is Jay from London. I've been listening to you for about 10 years now. And you kind of helped me learn how to speak English and feel better in the bad times. And I just wanted to say thank you for the laughs. Hi, Helen, Ollie, and Martin the Soundman. This is Dave in Massachusetts, United States. Just calling to congratulate you on a successful run and graceful end to answer me this podcast. And um, to let you know that I am disappointed that without you answering questions, public librarians like me will have to answer more questions. Um, But I'm prepared to take that on. Your telephone number is the only telephone number I know off by heart. Ollie, I know more about cats and Disneyland than I thought I ever would need to. And I think I share all of your complete lack of love for field sports. At least the legacy continues because you've still got AMT coffee stands. And every time I see one as I pass through a train station, I'll be thinking of you guys. Very sad to hear that the podcast's closing, but all good things come to an end. I'm so sad you're coming to an end. It means we're all growing up, and that's sad in itself. Look, I'm in stage three of grief, which is bargaining. What will it take? What will it take? Name your price. Our only question is, what on earth do we do without you guys now? Here's a question from Jamie in Saskatoon in Canada, which is the home of Joni Mitchell. And Jamie says, My wife and I have owned and lived in the actual childhood home of Joni Mitchell since 2005, when we bought it from her parents, who were then in their 90s. Wow. Yes. 
It's been a great place to live, but my wife and I are ready to move on. Uh However, we worry about what will happen to the house should we sell it. It would be ironic if you put a parking lot on it, wouldn't it? Oh! (laughs) We can't prevent new owners from making big changes, trashing the place or even bulldozing it to build something new. We want to do right by history, but we don't have the means to keep the house and buy a new one. And we don't really want to become the proprietors of a live-in Joni museum. Take Joni's house, put it in the Joni Museum. <laughs> uh, are there any other Joni songs you can work into this? I don't no, have the knowledge. No, I've been a presenter on Magic, Helen. Of course, that's the only Joni Mitchell song I know. <laughs> uh, Ollie, answer me this. What can we do to preserve Joni Mitchell's childhood home for posterity? Or is it even important enough to try? You can, Jamie, apply to the Saskatchewan Register of Heritage Property. Ah! They say, any building structure or site may be designated as a provincial heritage property when it is of architectural, historical, cultural, environmental, archaeological, paleontological, aesthetic or scientific value. So, um, assuming there aren't dinosaur bones under it that you don't know about, you would be arguing for (laughs) cultural and historic, I guess. Then what would happen to it? Well, this is the issue, isn't it? What I'd be concerned about is you say you want to sell it. I think once you've slapped a preservation order on it, that could be tricky. Mm. Now, obviously, the Saskatchewan Register of Heritage Property play that down because they don't want to put people off from registering their historic properties for preservation. But the truth is, obviously, you know, once you've said this is of significance, they they can't force your hand on restoration because it remains privately owned and they haven't put any money into it. But they can say in the future... You know, no, you can't build a parking lot on it, but also, no, you can't put a skylight in it. And no, you can't, I don't know, widen the post box or whatever. And that might be something that you would applaud as someone who wants to preserve Joni Mitchell's childhood home, but it might not be something that a buyer wants to see when they're looking around the property. So I think it's something that you should suggest to the buyer they might want to do, um, but maybe not something that you should register to do before you've sold it, since that is your intention. You could do it quietly. (laughs) You can. I don't think. Well, you'd have a pretty poor estate agent if they didn't notice that the property was of uh, national historic interest when they're looking through your paperwork. That is the kind of thing you can keep on the down low. But do you have to be? The, I mean, this would be a real dick move. But like, do you have to be the property owner to register it as a, a significant oh. place? Could you sell the house and then, you know, as the you know, once the completion is done or whatever, then just quietly be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just register this. That's an interesting point. To fill in the PDF on their website, you do have to be the property owner. Okay. But the final decision is made by the Minister of Parks, Culture and Sport. So I don't see what would stop you working out their email address and dropping them a cheeky note telling them about mm. it. Like, you know, that's who makes the decision. Mm. Like They're the ones who pull the string. So you don't have to fill out the PDF. Do you? you can just nudge, nudge. But personally, I think in general, it's really great. I mean, I always do this when I'm on holiday in a place. I always look round if I can, buildings of significance where people lived who I'm interested in. But... I'm interested in the buildings they lived in when they did their important work. Uh, And, you know, Joni Mitchell's childhood home, really? What's the significance? Well, she started smoking when she was nine. (laughs) (laughs) But you can't go in there and look at it unless it is a sort of museum like Graceland, can you? So it's, I mean, it's nice to go past it and be like, oh, that was the house where, blah, blah, blah. But you could do that if it was just a mcdonald's right i don't think you'd be like that's the mcdonald's that Joni mitchell grew up in the same airspace as no you would because it's like you're gonna go past a suburban home and be like Joni mitchell grew up in that house and like well so what like they look it would probably look the same as all the other suburban homes on the street right actually i can i can prove you're wrong with a recent example from my holiday okay yes. go on then. we were in stratford upon avon last week and we did the open bus tour um because my two-year-old is not that interested in for example the birthplace of shakespeare's mother fair enough um but could be lured upon an open-top bus 
We passed, Martin, what was the site of Shakespeare's final home where he died in 1616. Um, Mm -hmm. It's where he wrote The Tempest, and there's nothing there. I mean, there's another house there that isn't his house. And the the guide, as you're going around, says that what happened is, obviously, Shakespeare was famous in his own lifetime. His legend grew after he died. And about 130 years after he died, the bloke who owned the house then, uh, the Reverend Francis Gastrell, got irritated with tourists wanting to see it. So he demolished the house. That's a, that is a real dick move. Yeah, I know. In 1759, like 150 years after Shakespeare. So it's not like, you know, he knew what he was doing. He was like, no, nation, you will not have Shakespeare's home. If you won't leave me alone, no one can see it. And so now you go past him. What you hear is this anecdote about this guy behaving like a massive cock. But you're just looking at a house that was built post 1750s. It's not the same. I think um, a blue plaque would be a great option for Joni Mitchell's house. I don't know whether um saskatoon has uh, its own version of that but i think in london when you're going around you're like oh cool it's where boris karloff was born <laughs> just uh, above a shop in uh, on a rope but um you can't do that once the place has been knocked down and it's just a site and so yes i agree with you wally that there is a difference you could put a commemorative plaque saying Joni mitchell grew up on this piece of land but it isn't the same I just think if it's not part of their origin myth, it's not that important. Like Paul McCartney's childhood home is a tourist attraction in Liverpool. And that's important because Paul and John went to school together and hang out together there. But like Michael Jackson's childhood home, I would understand. Like Mozart's, you know, they were doing important work when they were five. But Joni Mitchell wasn't. They were producing a lot of uh, Jackson talent in that home. Exactly. But I just think... I would, if it was open as a tourist attraction, for example, go and see Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room at Harvard. I'd find that quite interesting, <laughs> like where Facebook was programmed. I would not be interested in Mark Zuckerberg's childhood home. That's just not interesting, mm. is it? Joni Mitchell is still alive. I wonder whether you could get in touch with Joni Mitchell's people and ask what they think about it. Well, I think that's the ultimate answer, isn't it? Like, she's not that bothered, so why are you? You know, she's not made any moves to preserve this. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, you could film a digital tour. Um, I know that sounds really weird, but it isn't because you're going to empty the house of your belongings, right? So you could mm-hmm. then make a YouTube video of you doing a guided tour of the house. Yeah. And you could upload it after you've left. So it's not got any of the new people's possessions in it. Yeah, though empty houses always look a little bit rubbish, grim. Don't they? Yeah, well, that's why Homes Under the Hammer needs all the pop music licensing to spruce it up. <laughs> well, they could play Joni Mitchell over this video. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, you know, that would satisfy your urge to preserve for posterity what it looked like you know, in your view, when she was a child, uh, even if the new people change it. It's it's there on the internet then, isn't it? Do you think the house having the, the fame by association increases its value or decreases it because of what you were saying about the potential added difficulty to renovating? I think increases its value ultimately, but to the right buyer. I think it limits the amount of people who want it. That's the problem. Right. Okay, then advertise this house very heavily at Joni fans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. That's that's actually not a bad marketing sell, yeah. I mean, people do forget about childhood homes. Like, even Jenny Mitchell's probably forgotten that it could be a possibility that someone would know that that was the house she grew up in and turn it into a thing. Like I, I was talking to a tabloid journalist once who'd got a scoop just by going to Adele's childhood home and asking the current tenant if he could go and look in the attic. Ugh. And in the attic was a whole load of stuff that Adele's mum had left behind, of like Whoa. Adele's school reports and stuff like that. It was just there. That's all he did, but no other journalist had thought to ask. Like, people forget about them. That is odd. If you went to my childhood home, uh, which my parents had from when I was two till 25, it's changed so much inside that like the people who bought it after them basically ripped everything out, like mm. completely reconfigured the garden, so the land looks different even. So it wouldn't 
feel like my childhood home, even though the exterior walls are those of my childhood home. Well, it wouldn't to you, but obviously to the legions of uh, Answer Me This fans, it would be a shrine. But I wouldn't want them to think that I grew up with a place that had more than one bathroom (laughs) and that wasn't freezing cold all the time. It would be not representative. This is the jar of sweets that Helen was allowed one from every decade. As if. (laughs) I've been listening to Answer Me This for more than 10 years. I've since got married, bought a house, undertaken a gender transition, had children and survived a pandemic. You've been constant companions, and I'm sad that we won't continue to grow old together. You guys were my first. I found you when I was in grade 11 in Canada. I was a small boy, and I figured out what podcasts were, and I listened to you guys all the time while I played Call of Duty up in my bedroom alone. When I was younger, I shared a room with my sister, and she would listen to answer me this every night before bed and I would listen in. I was too young to know what was going on and being said, and that's probably for the best, because going back through the old episodes, some of the subject matter was not appropriate for, like, a five-year-old. Thank you for so many amazing hours and years of teaching me information, like how those guys spritz themselves with old jizz before going on the pull, which I can't forget, no matter how hard I try. When everyone else in our year was obsessed with Justin Bieber and had him plastered all over their walls, um, for us, that was you. And I actually had a clock that my friend Tom sent to you to get signed and then you sent it back to me for my birthday. So thank you very much for that. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time growing up having you in my ears. In 2012, I founded the Facebook group, the campaign to get you two to commentate the 2012 Olympics. My iPod Touch was called Martin the Sound Pod. I started listening to Answer Me This as a young student on endless bus journeys to Aberdeen to keep a long-distance relationship going. The result of that is that I now listen to Answer Me This, driving our two young children to nursery. Your frolics, facts and dulcet tones have cradled me through difficult times and have been my constant ever since. So much so that I even listened to your home entertainment album whilst in labour with my son last year. You got my oxytocin flowing so nicely that I only had time to listen to the first half. I haven't quite brought myself to hit play on the second half just yet. Jack has been in touch to say, I'd like to say a massive thank you for all the years of laughter, excellent facts and companionship. I still sing to myself the first half of the jingle from the episode immediately after the 2016 Brexit referendum. Fuck, 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 what have we done whenever I've made the slightest mistake? <laughs> Very useful. There you are, a tune you can use. Jack also says, I was hoping you might be able to dedicate a jingle or a question or even an advert for Squarespace to my girlfriend, Rosha. Pound for pound, I bet you'll be pressed to find a listener who spent quite so much time with your show. For all of the six years that I've known her, listening to Once Me This has been part of her daily routine. Ooh. It's her show of choice to listen to while falling asleep. I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. Yeah, thanks. That again. Keep hearing this, don't we? <laughs> People are napping through this thing. This usually means that she gets through about five minutes of each episode at a time. It works! Uh, so here is Rocha's ad for Squarespace, your one-stop shop for creating your own website. <laughs> That's right. Rosha, you must be so honoured to have this most prestigious of places on the podcast. Put it on the mantelpiece. Do you know, I, I look back through our emails to see when Squarespace first got in touch. It was the 7th of August, 2013. Uh, I still have the wow. email. Hey there, my name is Ilias. I'm emailing you on behalf of squarespace.com, a company based out of New York City. We're interested in sponsoring your programme. Please let me know if this is something that might interest you best. Imagine if we'd never written back to Ilias, Helen. <sighs> 
This is how we pay our rent. Uh, Ilias no longer works for Squarespace, uh, according to his LinkedIn. Um, but uh, Ilias, if you are still listening, thank you for hooking us up with Squarespace. Yes. Partly because uh, genuinely, um, you know, it's made a difference to our lives having a sponsor huge, on the show. Huge difference. And they've never, ever pushed back about what we've said or how we say it or even no. the medium of song. So they've been delightful. Every time we've sent in the clips of uh, what we've done, thinking they're not going to like this and we've pushed it too far and then they'll just write back saying we did enjoy sharing this around the office yeah so i sometimes wonder whether they're just sponsoring us for their own shits and giggles (laughs) but thank you whatever the motivation is is great because it's much nicer being paid to do this podcast than not being paid to do it yes so that's lovely so thank you squarespace for all your years of patronage um but also it's been lovely working with squarespace because genuinely they're a great product i mean it is actually nice to hear from you uh, and all of the different people out there who now have Squarespace websites that exist because you got our link on this show, squarespace.com slash answer, and went and created yourself a website because you heard it here. Because genuinely, they are the best platform to build yourself an easy website. Love an easy website. There's no learning code. There's no flicking between HTML. Yeah. There's no formatting things. It just all works. If you want to try it out for yourself, Maybe if you're starting a podcast to fill the hole in all these people's lives who have nothing to sleep to now, <laughs> go to squarespace.com slash answer, use the free trial. And when you're ready to launch, you can get 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain if you use our code answer. answer. Here's a question from Barbie. And it's a question that I could have sworn we'd done, but apparently we never have. We never have. Barbie says, my name is Barbara, a very common name for women at my age in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. In Swiss German, the word for doll is Barbie, B-A with the umlaut on top, B-I, which is a rather old-fashioned nickname for Barbara. Barbie, also a nickname for Barbara, is one of the most famous dolls in the world. One of the? I'd go as far to say the most. Just go for it. Like, I don't know, but I can't think of a more famous doll than Barbie. I mean, she shits all over Woody. Chucky? Ali answer me this why is Barbie the doll called Barbie and is this connection between my name and dolls a coincidence or were there any Swiss connections in the doll developing centre of Mattel 60 years ago so Barbie is called Barbie because they are named after the 15 year old at the time Barbara Handler who was the daughter of Ruth Handler who is the woman who first saw a doll and decided to make a version for children the doll that she saw though does have a Swiss connection um, because they were on holiday in Switzerland when they saw it. Oh, wow. And what they saw was, in fact, a German doll, which was called Lily. Hmm. Now, Lily was first made in 1952. Uh, Lily was a cool girl. Oh, oh. and a doll. Y- yes, she was hmm. deliberately sexually suggestive, sort of wisecracking, kind of Betty Boop vibes, basically. Imagine right, that, right. but in a foot-long adult novelty toy. That is what Ruth Handler saw on her holiday to Switzerland in 1956. Hmm. Surprising. Lily herself was a bit of spin-off merch from a successful comic strip from the newspaper Build. Sample uh, joke would be a policeman telling Lily two-piece swimsuits are illegal, and she says in return, in your opinion, which part should I take off? So you get the vibe. Oh, Lord. Um, and they were sold uh, basically for stag do's. What? So stag do's would play with dolls? Well, it was just exactly the same as now where you see hen parties walking around with giant cocks. Like, it was a funny bachelor party gift to have, like, a a buxom, taboo-breaking, sexually suggestive doll. Or men might give it to their female partners as a sexually suggestive gift. But it was was an adult novelty. 
But inevitably, they were appealing to children as well, increasingly. And Ruth Handler just managed to spot them at exactly the right time. She had Barbara with her, who was 15, and, you know, was intrigued by them. And she thought, hmm, what would a seven-year-old make of this? And the the sort of breakthrough idea that she had was taking this idea of a doll that had an adult female figure and put it on a doll for children. That hadn't been done before. All dolls for children until that point that had been mass marketed in the USA were babies or toddlers, whereas this was a <laughs> woman for little girls to play with. Okay. It's uncanny how much Barbie looks like Lily. It's a pretty close rip-off. I suppose at the time, if something was popular in Europe, Americans might not know about it unless it had been marketed over there, but you were probably a lot safer to rip off something from abroad than you would be now. Well, absolutely, and the get-out clause was, this is different to Lily because this is being marketed at kids. Lily's for adults. You know, the fact that children were playing with Lily was sort of put to one side... This was specifically marketed at kids, and it was kind of controversial. Um, toy buyers at the toy fair were sceptical that children would want one. And the original RRP was $3 to get parents to buy it, which was cheap. Like, they weren't making a lot of money per Barbie. But the idea, the kind of real revolutionary idea, was what the co-founder of Mattel, Elliot Handler, called the razor and razor blade technique, what? which is the money's in the clothes. Uh, so you yeah. buy the item, then you have to keep accessorising. It's like the money in SodaStream is the canisters or print, the machine. Printer yeah. cartridges. Yeah, printer cartridges is a classic one, exactly. So the Barbie was always cheap and still is quite cheap. It's like $20, but then it's $20 for the clothes. <laughs> you have to buy a new set of clothes every two months. So how did they choose the nickname for Barbara? Just because Ruth Handler's daughter was called Barbara? Yeah, simple as that. And Ruth okay. Handler's son was called Ken, so uh, they didn't look too far for that oh, name either. That's a bit weird, though, because Barbie and Ken are not siblings, even though they do have a sexless sibling vibe (laughs) they do they did do a swiss barbie by the way an actual explicitly swiss barbie in their dolls of the world series in 1984 what did that look like a bit of a hodgepodge of european influences exactly as you would expect some american executives to create if they've never been to switzerland they say she's got the influences of many countries including germany austria france and italy now albeit switzerland is in the middle of those places but yeah, it, she doesn't look that Swiss. Like, so the top half of her dress is a fitted bodice of blue and white with puffy sleeves. Her skirt is red with a flower print. She also wears white socks and black shoes. And her braided blonde hair is topped with a wide-brimmed sun hat with blue ribbon and a red flower. Don't know if that screams Swiss. Well, what would read Swiss to you, Ollie, if she was covered in fondue and uh, <laughs> wearing lots of watches? This is the thing, isn't it? Yeah, or yodelling. Like, you end up in cliches that are worse than what they did. Yeah, if she was a banker. <laughs> Uh, we have a question of another fictional character now from David, who says, uh, My dad always told me that his granddad was a friend of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. Our family name back then was Holmes. Uh, I know this is true. My dad's mum's maiden name was Iris Holmes. Uh, and my dad, not the most academic or literate of people, told me the legend that one day Doyle came for dinner and was telling my great-granddad about the idea he had for a new detective character but wanted a name and a distinctive appearance for him. The Holmes family, so the legend goes, had a plaster bust with a hook-nosed pipe and deerstalker that the family had nicknamed Sherlock. Mm. So Helen, answer me this. Is it possible that this is where Doyle came up with the distinctive look and name of his most famous creation? I'm fairly convinced my dad wouldn't have made all of this up, but maybe he was told the tale by a relative who had made it up. Well, how much is Sherlock Holmes' look created by Conan Doyle rather than the screen adaptations thereof. Right. Well, the the Deerstalker only came about when the stories were illustrated in the Strand magazine. 
um, which was 1891. Mm. So, um, I mean, it is an iconic look, but Holmes was only drawn wearing the Deerstalker hat because it was a mystery where he was visiting a country house. Right. And solving a mystery that involved going on a shoot. It's not like he wore... Like, people think Sherlock Holmes wears the Deerstalker hat all the time, but he, he doesn't. Just when appropriate hattage. Just when, yeah. It's a bit like, uh, you know, last episode when I was saying Enid Blyton never wrote Lashings of Ginger Beer, but everyone thinks you did mm. because of the parody. Yeah, everyone thinks that he's in the Deerstalker, but he isn't. Also, elementary, my dear Watson, he never says. He says things like it, but that is a parody by P.G. Woodhouse. Oh, what the hell? Oh, wow. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, the look of Sherlock Holmes, yeah, it's um, something that was probably solidified by the film and TV adaptations, but only really took root after the stories had been pictured, and that was after they'd been published. So... It's not something Conan Doyle would have brainstormed with your great-granddad. Which is a shame, because it is fun to have uh, these family myths. The inspiration for the character was uh, Conan Doyle's medical school professor, Dr. Joseph Bell. Mm. He said, I thought of my old teacher, Joe Bell, of his eagle face, of his curious ways and his eerie trick of spotting details. So apparently Mm. he used to do these demonstrations where he would cold read people and figure out their professions and all sorts of personal details just from... Uh, their appearance and uh, apparently it was uncanny and uh, so Conan Doyle thought well that would be interesting to make a detective uh, but he acknowledged that so I reckon that if he had also come up with the visual presentation he might have acknowledged that too in documented ways yeah, that's it I don't see why he would have withheld from history the conversation that he'd had with your great granddad if it had happened he, he did talk about the inspiration for his characters you know it's not like he didn't live long enough to see his characters be successful. He wrote dozens of these stories. And also, I don't know, it just seems a bit much, doesn't it, that they had a bust that was wearing a pipe and a deer stalker and had been nicknamed Sherlock. I mean, I could believe the first bit, but surely they nicknamed it Sherlock after the book was published. It's too much, isn't it? They just took the whole look and the name. Yeah, that sounds like backwards engineering, too doesn't much, it? Right. Sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Either you have this family joke that Arthur Conan Doyle had based Sherlock Holmes on you, you would name something in your home after that. Or just because your surname is Holmes, you would be like, oh, let's call the dog Sherlock, something like that, right? Yeah. You would. Exactly. I can believe that Conan Doyle was in your great-granddad's house. You had a plaster... Your family had a plaster bust with, say, a pipe. And he remembered Hmm. the pipe and your surname, and that informed part of the character. I can believe that. Yeah. The rest of it sounds like bullshit. My first boss... She said her dad was the inspiration for James Bond. <laughs> he was a journalist and did like a lot of uh, uh, dangerous foreign missions. And uh, he was also in Fleming's secretary. Mm. And I thought, well, that sounds nice. But then I looked it up and um, it turns out, yeah, Ian Fleming did base bits of Casino Royale on him because he was also um, his commander. Ian Fleming was uh, this guy, Ralph Izzard's commander. And uh, apparently there was a notorious card game where he had to play poker against covert Nazi intelligent agents in Brazil. Wow. I mean, if someone told you that, you could see how it would make its way into your fiction, can't you? Yeah. It's quite exotic. Certainly. But the truth is that any final character is a composite of lots of these different influences, aren't they? I mean, that's that's the inevitability of it. Yeah. You'd be pretty bold to just lift someone's entire personality, (laughs) whether they're a plaster bust or someone you've actually worked with, and put it into a story. Yes, I think also the character's been going since, what, the 1880s. Mm. Do the ages even line up? Well, maybe that's got a bit lost in translation. Maybe it was the great-grandfather's grandfather. Maybe. Even just the name Sherlock itself. It's, like, really frustrating how many different origin stories there are for that. You know, some people say it was named after the famous violinist Alfred Sherlock. Some say from a cricketer called Sherlock because Conan Doyle was a cricket fan. Right. Some point to the chief inspector William Sherlock of the Metropolitan Police. 
who was often mentioned in British newspapers. Mm. I mean, if they don't even know where the Sherlock comes from, I think you can claim the Holmes. But like you said, literary influences are there to be assimilated into a new work. Mm. So the origins ought to be less interesting, really, than what they become. Elementary, my dear Helen. Hello, Martin, Helen and Ollie. This is Dominic. And I just feel really close to all three of you. Uh, You all deal with some really heavy shit, (laughs) some really deep, heavy shit sometimes, but you don't run from it and you make it funny in the right places. And when you do stuff in the wrong places, you admit it. And I appreciate that. It's got me through bereavements, breakups, new jobs, bouts of real sort of depression and loneliness. And it has been the soundtrack to my life and at many points. I just wanted to send a quick thank you for being my imaginary best friends in my ears for the last 10 years. Uh, You've got me through a lot. (laughs) I've been listening to your show for, I don't know, like half my life. When I was much younger and still figuring out that I was queer and feeling very isolated, the fact that you answered questions from LGBT plus people and talked about them really gave me hope. I had some traumatic years of mental illness and family deaths. I didn't get out of the house much for years. But I took your podcast with me on trips that I did take, and you've been there to calm me down from panic attacks and make me laugh in the darkest of times. You've really helped me get through the last year and a half. I lost my mum a few months ago, and I've been having trouble sleeping because my mind's racing at night. So I invested in your early episodes and listened to those as I fall asleep. That way, even if I can't sleep, at least I'm having a laugh, and it's honestly been a lifeline. So thank you. I started listening listening to your show when I was 15, uh, and I'm now almost 30. I have used your podcast as my nighttime podcast to put me to sleep for that long. So I may never sleep again. I start, first started listening in 2008 when my twins were born and you used to keep me sane and awake um, through the night when I had to feed them. Twins are 13, I've got another one who's 11 and you're just great. I'm going to miss you so much and really, really good luck with whatever you guys do. Flammable or inflammable, jam a cream first on a scone. Is Big Bird a Muppet? That's a complicated one. Social conundrums from roommates to weddings. Neighbor washing your car and cupcake ladies' revenge. And many, many more that wouldn't fit into this song. When you can't be asked to Google and there's no right or wrong. Here's a wealth of knowledge and the banter game is strong. Thanks for answering us this for so long. Thank you for answering us this for so long. Jane has been in touch today. I just wanted to send a letter of thanks for your show. Back in 2013, when I was in grad school, I was having a really shitty time trying to get through a series of experiments uh, Martin can identify with this as four-year PhD of pissing around <laughs> with the carbon nanotubes and uh, just not wanting to get out of bed each day. Mm-hmm. Jane says, basically, I was sitting in a room for eight hours a day with a bunch of rats. This sounds nice. fake, but it's just neuroscience research. I had just talked to a therapist about how this was affecting me, and she told me to find ways to escape, even for just a moment. Amongst a couple of books I could bring into the lab, I also listened to a ton of Answer Me This, which served as an oasis for me. That's nice, an oasis in a sea of rats. It is, it is amazing when people say, and hundreds of you have, I mean, we don't want to discount this just because our default mode is humour. Like, we genuinely are staggered, and one of the motivational reasons that we've carried on doing this show for so long is hundreds of you have emailed to say, we have 
like it can be like helped you through a difficult moment, helped you through anxiety, helped you through your sexuality or whatever it is. But it can just be escape, as Jane says, from the rest of the world, from the news, from your family. Mm. Um, and if we provide that, it's a genuinely brilliant thing that we never really yeah. expected to do. No, absolutely not. And it is the best part of the job. Yeah. And this is another one. I mean, Joe says, uh, I discovered your podcast when I was deployed to Afghanistan in 2013 uh, with the British Army. I'm pretty sure I've listened to all your episodes and your podcast gave me so much comfort at a time that was sometimes really, really shit. Um, with mm. military precision there, putting a point on the feeling <laughs> that he was uh, going through. Uh, I mean, again, I'm not saying we're the modern day Vera Lynn, but I am saying... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that we're the modern day Verilyn. Well, Leah says, uh, I have loved listening to Answer Me This over the years. Started listening in 2014. Your podcast never fails to make me feel better. Aww. It is nice, isn't it? When I was in Berlin, I heard about the Wrapped Reichstag, an art installation mm. that cost $15 million to make. Is that is that yeah. literally like a wrapped car, but around the Reichstag? There were these artists, Christo and John claude whose uh, mode of art was wrapping things like uh, massive buildings, Arc de Triomphe trees yeah uh, yeah i did read a like a sunday times magazine article about them once and i was ringing a bell yeah and they wrapped the reichstag and it took them like a lot of regimes to get to be allowed to do it because a lot of the german governance at the time was uh not into it yeah it's one of those i mean like a lot of modern art it's one of those things that's sort of simultaneously spectacular and kind of defining and also completely unnecessary isn't it like you could imagine it without seeing it but then seeing it is a different dimension because it's so ridiculous <laughs> i was reading someone who um was living in berlin at the time and they were like i was really sniffy about it and um then i went and it was so magical that i ended up going lots of times yeah well, it's, it's like people say about the poppies at the tower of london isn't it Helen, answer me this. What is the most expensive piece of art ever made? Mm. Not based on how much it was sold for, but how much it actually cost to make, e.g. the materials, the wages of people working on it and any other costs. That is a, a really interesting question and, and quite hard to find in the Googling because they just want to tell you how much uh, Leonardo da Vinci painting sold for. But then I also do wonder what you factor into the expense. Like apparently most galleries take a 50% cut of sales proceeds. Mm -hmm. So is that part of the expense to the artist? And then I was thinking of the upkeep of pieces in public. So you've been to Chicago, right? Do you remember the big silver bean by Anish Kapoor? It's called Cloudgate. It's in a park. I do. That was um, apparently the most expensive piece of public art to be commissioned. It cost $23 million. Ooh. But I don't know whether that counts in... The fact that they have to clean it every day. They have to clean the, the lowest uh, six feet twice a day by hand. Yeah. And then twice a year, they clean the whole thing with liquid detergent. I don't know how you adjust for inflation because the Wrapped Reichstag cost $15 million in 1995. Mm. Chicago Bean cost $23 million in uh, like 2004, I think they, they commissioned it. The other Anish Kapoor... You know, the the one that's like a sort of twisty roller coaster track that's in the Olympic Park in Stratford. Yeah. The ArcelorMittal Orbit. Yes. That cost uh, £22.7 million. So in conversion, that's more than the bean. Yeah, it's tricky to define because, I mean, that is public art, obviously, in that it sort of doesn't have a use apart from to be visually impactful. But then it does have a second life as a big slide. Yeah. Fairground ride, basically, yeah. Yeah, and it was the centrepiece of Britain's Olympic site so it's like i mean yes that's art but also it's like the anchor for the whole like do you factor that into the cost of the whole olympic park really also you can pay to go up it and and so not only is it a viewing platform like you know the space needle although obviously not as tall it's also 
you can charge entry. Mm. Whereas most public art, that's not really the case. So I don't know whether you have to defray the costs of uh, people paying to buy tickets. So are there any other runners and riders, though? I mean, are those the ones to choose from, whatever the caveats are? Yeah, I think those are the the most persuasive ones I found. I did think of that Damien Hurst real skull that is covered in diamonds, including some really big diamonds. It's called For the Love of God. Yeah, But that only cost 14 million quid only (laughs) in 2007. It allegedly allegedly sold that year for 50 million, but to an anonymous consortium. So people were like, is the anonymous consortium Damien Hurst? And he's just done this for the story. Mm. <laughs> mm. I mean, that's an impressive one because it's a private piece of art. You can't slide down yeah. it. It's small. <laughs> I'm not saying that the art itself is any more impressive or not impressive because it is or isn't publicly funded. But obviously, when it comes to public funding, it's a little bit easier to find $20 million to put on a big statue, isn't it? But I mean, if you actually manage to create a skull covered in diamonds and sell it, that's impressive. Something that I found interesting was that like, you've got these Anish Kapoor pieces that uh tens of millions and the whole like acquisition budget of the Louvre per year I think is like seven million and yet this art that we've pumped into your ears it's free it's worthless wait we could nft it ollie (laughs) 145 million for one episode (laughs) you've got to think big (laughs) to own the first episode of answer me this yeah how much would you pay yeah (laughs) well 79 pence is all you need to pay You've answered some of my questions. Um, Ollie actually gave me a nickname, unfortunately. Um, I asked why so many English counties have sex as a suffix, and he called me Smarty Smarty Catherine Sex Brain. It was one of the episodes that a friend listened to, so that stuck about for a while. I asked a question about a Book of Mormon and what to do to get rid of them. I ended up getting rid of it at a recycling day that was for kind of like odds and ends and things that you wouldn't normally put out. So like batteries and books, so I put it out in the curb then. When I heard the answer to my question, I was in a gym and I got so flustered that you answered my question that I dropped my deadlift. Um, I stuck with it despite listening to my first episode while suffering from the flu and spending an entire night lying awake with your opening theme stuck in my head, providing the soundtrack to my hallucinations. You've answered my questions on genital nicknames, creepy dolls and interior decoration. Your advice on what degree of trespassing was acceptable for scattering Grandpa's ashes at his old house was quite helpful, as it stopped my mum spiralling into ever more elaborate plans to sneak in and persuaded her to just go and ask the new residents if she could. Back in 2017, I sent in a question anonymously about whether or not I should tell my mother before I climbed a mountain. Well, to my surprise, you guys answered it, and on the same day the episode was released, I got a message from my sister asking if the question was for me. She ended up playing the episode in front of the whole family, including my mother, at Thanksgiving dinner. So, so much for it being anonymous. I did end up climbing that mountain that year. And yes, I listened to Answer Me This at the top of Pyramid Mountain in Jasper, Alberta, Canada. It's Freya in France. I was previously on your podcast asking about how to stop people throwing their litter into my bike basket. I got into Answer Me This in 2013 when a friend told me about Cupcake Lady, and I've loved it ever since. This opened the world of podcasts to me. Hello, everyone. This is Jenny from Vancouver here, a.k.a. the anonymous cupcake lady from many, many moons ago. I've been listening to Answer Me This for so many years, and one of the biggest thrills of my life was when you guys answered my question in episode 271. I was fully famous for five minutes on the internet, and it was joyous. 
Uh, you might also remember me from another episode where I described my extremely careless boyfriend and his various attempts at burning our house down. I married that careless boyfriend, and not only is he still extremely careless with fire, but he's also tried to kill me with water. This time by flooding our garden. <sighs> Don't ask. I want to thank you for one question you answered in I think 2011 or 2012. Where one listener had written in to say how much they hated people saying nothing and something. At that time, I was going out with a lady who said the same thing, and it used to grind my nuts. However, Helen's advice was just get over it, and so I did. And I ended up marrying this lovely lady, and we've been happily married for the last six years. And I don't think I would have <laughs> been able to have such a happy marriage. If I didn't constantly think, just get over it. I asked a question at some point about how to get people to leave my parties, and Helen suggested putting an end time on the invitation. And now I do it every time, and it's amazing. And everybody leaves, and I don't have to deal with them after a few hours. We now interrupt this broadcast with a pubic service announcement、Good、from、Lord. our sponsors, Manscaped. <laughs> the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer is now available <laughs> for purchase in the EU and UK. Wow! Don't trim your balls with the Lawnmower 3.0 anymore, you retrograde. Or just a lawnmower. <laughs> Definitely don't use a flymo.、Um, <laughs> um, use the Lawnmower 4.0, which is, I mean. The three point zero genuinely is a great product that Manscaped make for trimming your balls.、Yeah. Uh, the lawnmower four point zero they have improved upon it. It's extraordinary what they've done, Helen. Okay, well, reluctant as I am to know about your lawn, Ollie.、Mm. How did you mow it? Like the youngest child at a Saturday night dinner, you're asking what makes this trimmer different <laughs> from any other. Well,、uh, it has a、wow. travel lock. So it won't vibrate in your wash bag. That is,、uh, I, I gather, a frequent embarrassment for people taking electrical goods. On These、plates. are genuinely、mm. useful in innovations, Helen. Yes,、uh, it has an LED spotlight that you can now turn on and off. So it always had lights. It was one of the best features of of、uh, Manscaped's pubic trimmers. But now you can choose whether to be illuminating your balls or not. Well, <laughs> just just go in the dark. And it has size one to four guard lengths, which means that you don't just have to use it down below. You always could use it on your chest hair and stuff, but this one's really great because you can use it on your pubic area, but also on different lengths of chest hair, arse hair. Like unsightly shoulder hair. I have shoulder hair that's like two inches long and revolting. It's great for that. Oh, little wings like a cherub. <laughs> and it has wireless charging now. Finally, a ball trimmer with wireless charging. They've done it. That does sound handy and ballly. And you can get twenty percent off and free shipping when you use the code Answer at Manscaped dot com. That is twenty percent off with free shipping at Manscaped dot com and use the code Answer. Answer. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Here's a question from Joe in San Francisco, who says, "I'm a little behind the times, but I just started watching Game of Thrones." <laughs> Congratulations! And the characters keep sending each other messages by raven. I've never heard of a carrier raven, but I have heard of a carrier pigeon. That's a real thing, right? Yes, it is a real thing. It is. Brutus was using them in 44 BC, before even Game of、Whoa. Thrones was on HBO. Anyway, says Joe, answer me this. How do carrier pigeons know where they're going? I'm pretty sure they don't understand postal codes. A pigeon's a lot smarter than they seem. Well, they're about as smart as they seem, I'd say. Which, you know, if you're paying attention, is quite smart for a bird with a small brain. Yeah, they get by. The crucial thing, obviously, is that 
they're homing pigeons. That's a better phrase than carrier pigeons. I mean, I know they're carrying right. a message in a wartime scenario that you're referring to, but the point is they go, they only go one way. That you don't give them a destination and then they go to a different place. <laughs> they go back to their home. That's what they instinctively do. So that's what you're utilizing. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, they have been known with certain breeds. I mean, your standard street pigeon. If you pick one up in in Trafalgar Square and tried to turn it into a carrier pigeon, you can sort of groom it to do that, but it's only going to fly a few miles probably. But if you buy the special breed of homing pigeon that is best used for this kind of thing, uh, unflown Mm. squeakers, I've seen recommended as the stock you need. (laughs) Um, That's like when you're holding a fart in. (laughs) If you buy yourself some uh, unflown squeakers, you can theoretically train them to fly their way home from as many as 1,100 miles away, which is amazing. Wow. How long does that take? And how do you train them to do that? They do it instinctively, but, you know, you maybe start with smaller journeys, basically. Uh, What is interesting about it is, and I I saw one scientist saying, like, I understand why we don't understand everything about quantum physics, but how do we not understand how birds work still? (laughs) What's amazing is that scientists don't agree really on how they do it. There are three theories, and they all have some legitimacy, and they probably overlap, and the truth is somewhere on the Venn diagram. But Mm -hmm. either it's sense of smell and or they're using magnetic fields. Um, They think it's magnetism Mm. because even when it's cloudy and they can't see where the sun is, they still have a sense of direction, so that can only really be magnetism. And or it's infrasounds. Don't ask me to explain what those are, but, you know. (laughs) Very, very low sounds. Thanks, Martin. Yeah, so a combination of those things is what helps them sort of track their way. But when they track them digitally and they put a GPS chip on them and they see what they've done, what's interesting is, like, if you fly a homing pigeon across the same route ten times... The first two or three times, they'll go a bit wrong. They might go as many as like 25 miles out of their way whilst they're trying to find their way back home. But then what happens is they like hit upon a route, but they start using objects to navigate clearly. So they, their brain is developed enough that they're like, yeah, I go to that church steeple, then I go to that branch of Burger King. But they are actually looking at <laughs> things on the ground. I mean, probably more like trees and, and lakes and stuff. But they're using all of their senses to navigate the exact same route every time so that they refine it. So that by the sort of sixth journey, they've now found their route and they'll always do it A to B every time as quickly as possible. Wow. Clever, isn't it? I think there's quite a lot of creatures where they have uh, what seem to us humans extraordinary powers of navigation, like eels knowing how to get to the Sargasso Sea to breed, even though they've not been there before. Mm. And once they've been, they die, so they can't really transmit the information intergenerationally. Mm. Maybe it's just that humans are pretty shit at this, (laughs) (laughs) especially now that we have like Google Maps in our phones. I think pigeons are just like these basic bitch humans. They can just about manage to navigate a couple of miles with a map in front of them. My favourite moment of answering me this uh, was when I proposed to my husband and you were there because you did it for me. Thanks for taking that pressure off and thank you for starting the best chapter of my life. You guys don't know me, but you've been a companion to mine for the last, well, I don't actually know how many years now. You won't know this, but you guys helped me get through my traumatic master's degree. Uh, you were there at seven o'clock in the morning with me when I was having my coffee and early morning cry and helped cheer me up. You've been there with me on buses throughout Asia. You've been with me cycling through Europe. And most recently, you helped get me through a very long quarantine and isolation period in North America. So thank you very much for all of the laughs and all the cheers over the years. My name's Kirk Pearson. I'm a composer and sound designer originally from New York. And 
I owe you guys uh, a deep debt of gratitude. So I started listening to Answer Me This in around 2009 when I was a really manic, depressive uh, high school student (laughs) studying music. I I found myself becoming a more compassionate and curious person, earnestly, the more I listened to you. So uh, I actually composed a jingle for you. But I didn't submit it under my own name. I submitted it under Anonymous because I was too scared of anyone actually hearing my name and knowing that I worked on something creative. After my commute, when I find the time, I can always send a question to the question line. Inquiries are wanted as a part of the plan. Holla Helen or Holly or Martin the Sound Man. I actually do that professionally. I write music for film, for podcasts, for television. Sometimes I invent my own musical instruments today. And it all kind of started from the jingle I wrote for you. So to all three of you, thank you. Thank you so much. You've you've gotten me through some incredibly hard times over the last decade plus, And you've, you've helped me become a better person. It's nearly the end of the show. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> something that pops into my mind quite a lot. Yeah, me too, actually. Oh, I thought of another thing that is your legacy, Ollie, from Answer Me This. Every time that I make myself a booze-free Bloody Mary, oh, right. I add the juice of half a lemon, and it's great. And every time I think, I'm really glad Ollie uh, gave me that tip, because it really makes the drink. But I mean, how would you make a Virgin Mary without lemon? I don't understand. Well, just be tomato. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's not a Virgin Mary, is it? It's the spice and the lemon, surely, that makes it the Virgin Mary. I mean, well, I suppose what you're doing is you're crediting me with Marian technique. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would make it with the tomato, the hot sauce, maybe some Worcestershire sauce, maybe a celery stick, right. but not everyone would do the lemon. I mean, I often do the lemon and a bit of the brine from the olive jar because I put some spicy olives in there as well. Oh, good. Well, that's obviously very much a Marian technique as well. Yeah, I remember you talking about putting olive juice in a, in a martini. Yes, yeah. Because of Sophie Dahl's advice. That's my dirty martini, yeah. Preserved lemon juice goes in a dirty martini now, too. If you get the posh preserved lemon, it's delicious. And, I mean, if I leave you with anything, mm-hmm. uh, I think I've said this before, but I want to say, I want to commit this to posterity. Yeah. Vegan pesto made fresh. It's as good as uh, as pesto with parmesan in it. Yeah. Do you put anything in to get that sort of cheesy taste or not? No. Like, it's absolutely fine. I mean, obviously, you can double up on the herbs. You don't have to just have basil. Make sure there's lots of garlic, whatever. But, I mean, you do not need the parmesan. Always make sure there's lots of right, garlic. Exactly. In everything. I was just, I was so amazed to realise cheese is, is gratuitous to pesto. Like, I know Italians are upset at me as I say it, but it's true. <laughs> you just try setting foot in their country again. <laughs> <laughs> with that, we transition into the final ever question on Answer Me This. <gasps> Oh, wow. It is from Rosie from Kent. Uh-huh. Ooh. As you are, Helen. From Kent, that's yeah. right. Previously living in Sardinia, now living in Cambridgeshire. She says, My friend Liz and I have been fans of the podcast since the beginning, and one of my proudest moments has been becoming a questionnaire back in 2013. Aww. I've always wanted to ask something else, and now nearly eight years later, <laughs> a quandary worthy of your attention has finally arisen. Yesterday, a package arrived for me, and inside it was a present from Liz, a beautiful knitted woolen replica of my VW camper van. Wow. That sounds cool. She says, I know you get a lot of what do you do with a terrible present I don't want. We do. Yeah, throw it away. But I would like your advice on how to best show off slash use slash make the most of this amazing item which took her so long to make and brings me such joy. Aww. That is a nice one to finish with. So, Helen, answer me this. Other than proudly displaying the item on our shelf, what could I do 
with this woolen masterpiece. P.S. Coincidentally, I seem to be making babies at a similar rate to Ollie. <laughs> shop, shop, shop there. Uh, and have um, <laughs> two boys, age five and two, which might help you answer the question. Although I'm sure they would destroy the camper van if they were allowed to actually play with it. Yes. Well... Just in case, first of all, I would take a lot of photos of the camper van and it might be extra cute if you can do that like in front of a poster of somewhere you'd take the camper van, like the seaside or a forest. So you've got a definite reminder just in case a child does something destructive yes, to it good. or sets it on fire. The good thing about a knitted thing is that it's hard to smash. Agree. And they're often quite durable. But I think until they're old enough that you can leave it at child height and they're going to ignore it. You could put it like in a box frame on the wall so it's oh, yeah. safe, but you can look at it every day. Yes. Or even, I mean, if you want to be extravagant, like a box window. I mean, I know adding an architectural feature to your home may be out of your pocket, but if you really wanted to make a thing of it, you could stick it right there for people to see as they pass. Wow. So you're suggesting like make a new hole in your wall. Yeah. And glaze the camper van into it. Or, you know, the cheap version would be take the window that faces the street and light the camper van in a way that can be seen. Depending on the fibres, it might fade the colours a little bit. Fair. You could also just put it somewhere where it's too high for children to reach unless they're climbers and they're able to scramble up the bookshelves. Mm -hmm. But I wonder whether you could make like a cool diorama of other camper van appropriate surroundings, like get some little fake pine trees to go around it and like a little campfire and doll's house stuff. That's nice because the danger is that people might think I'm going to get a kind of camper van collection yes you know i'll get a camper van uh, teapot yeah. i'll get a camper van plushie yeah salt cellars and actually what you're doing then i think is you're minimizing the value of the knitted camper van rather than adding to it so but a, but a diorama yeah. says this is the context in which this item should be properly enjoyed you could change it with the season so like you could do a full christmas thing mm. summer would be different to autumn i think maybe that would be a, a fun thing because then it's also reinventing it each time and you could post pictures for Liz, of each iteration of the camper van. Also, if the real-life camper van is still alive and kicking and part of your life and beloved to you, you could put it on the dash in the camper van. Because camper vans get a lot of attention. Mm. I know, because my five-year-old is fascinated by them and shouts and points at them whenever we see one. Too right. Uh, apart from, like, the modern-style ones that Auntie Peters gives away on ITV. But, like, the you know, the old ones. <laughs> if you had a knitted camper van on a dashboard of that and my son saw that in a car park, it would be an event. Like, he'd want a photo in front of it be like a fractal of camper vans yeah so for, for the camper van fan that would be a nice way to contextualize the knitted camper van albeit it could get a bit dirty Fanper van a what Fanper van yeah Fanper van <laughs> not too late to invent new words amazing in the last minute well snatched it from the jaws of the feet. it's really it's really not my best <laughs> oh you found out something interesting about the word questionnaire ollie which we've been using since i think the start of the podcast meaning people who send in questions yeah that's right i'm not sure when exactly we first started using the phrase questionnaire but it's in the answer me this book which is 2010 i think we probably yeah. started using it in 2008 it is a helen saltzman coinage is it well done, me. It's definitely not one of mine, yeah. I know I did Hertfordshire, County of Opportunity and Stevenage, but I don't think I came up with question it. <laughs> but I went to the Fat Duck for lunch, not because I got loads of money, because it was my 40th birthday. That's a treat. It was a once-in-a-lifetime thing, although I have been once mm. before, so twice in a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they give you, when you go to the Fat Duck, to make up for the fact that you've uh, just spunked the price of a mini-break on lunch, a brochure that has in it, like from Heston Blumenthal, an explanation of all of the dishes. Ah. And um, embellished on the front was a question mark and a crest on like his personal family crest or whatever. And he said, um, the reason uh, that I have a question mark on my crest is because I invented the word questionnaire. Oi, Heston. Yeah. I invented the word questionnaire and it means to question everything and to eat in my restaurant is to question the origin of everything. That just means you're inquisitive. That word already existed. I believe he thinks he invented it, but... 
I'm not saying we did, but definitely we had it before him. So just saying. When they're putting words in the dictionary, they need uh, written instances of a word imprint or like demonstrable use. And I think we have demonstrable prior use unless he did use that word in the fat dark like 20 years ago. Anyway, we're not going to take you to court, Heston. If you want to just give us uh, lunch in the Mandarin Oriental, we'll take that. <laughs> that. That would be an appropriate place for our rap party. Yeah, take one of your free meat fruits as compensation. Yeah, not one of the Waitrose range, though, and not one of your weird barbecues. Actual lunch by a chef, please. Okay, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah. Wow. Gosh, can this really be it? I thought I was ready for this moment. I don't think I can ever be ready for this moment where we've come to the end yeah. of the final episode of Answer Me This. Well, should we, can we just do some listener admin at this point? Please don't email us anymore. Or if you do, know that you will be getting an out of office and we will almost certainly never read that email. I suppose oftentimes you've emailed us because you needed to write things down, not because you needed someone to read it. And I suppose our own box still exists for that function. Yeah. I have turned off our voicemail though. So the question line will just ring and ring and ring. But thanks so much to everybody who emailed us and recorded themselves and said such wonderful things. And also for everyone who's just been around for the 14 and two thirds years of this podcast and submitted jingles and sent us stuff and like just been so incredibly kind and lovely. Well, this is, I mean, uh, it's of course a a terrible humble brag to mention this, but uh, we were given an award at the British Podcast Awards a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, just basically a being old award. They invented a new award. (laughs) for yeah. asking me this just because we've been going for a fucking age it's sort of like a lifetime achievement oscar yeah it was like um at the world music awards where they just invented an award for michael jackson every year so you'd show up um <laughs> had, they gave us the gold award which is yeah sort of like you've been around for ages they added a g to old and i was speaking to matt from the podcast awards about why they'd done that and he said that what he thought was different about our show what was important about our show was that until we started, because I think a lot of people think we kind of invented podcasting. We didn't. No. Like Podcasting's been around for years before we did it. There were British podcasts before us. There were independent British podcasts before us. But he said what we did in 2007 is we created a show based around interactivity. And he thought until then, the view was probably from radio people especially, radio is for interactivity because it's live. Podcasts aren't because podcasts are on demand. And what you you can't have interactivity because how can you listen to something that's happening as if it's live when it happened potentially months ago? And we showed that it is possible to involve the audience. And I, I thought there was something very true about that. Like, this show has always been about you, your thoughts, your questions. People have said lots of nice things about what we've contributed to the world of podcasting. But I think actually that might be it. Like, we did create a place where people could come and talk to us as if it was live, and listen to it when they needed it. Before Web 2.0. Right, even, exactly, before social, social media. media. in such a different place. Yeah. So it wasn't just the nature of every programme to, to invite interaction. It was uncommon at the time. But also, to me, like a lot of what podcasting is about is the community. Yes. And I've met so many great people through this show, like really changed my life through mm. this show. And podcasting itself has changed a lot, particularly in the last couple of years, where it's just become gentrified and there's a lot of like money people coming in and i think they're just like oh this is some territory we can exploit for money and they don't realize that the best thing that it's about is community i think yeah i agree it's been lovely to be able to create a place where that can happen and also to create a place i mean it's weird saying this uh, just on a personal level to create a place that in some way immortalized yeah. our friendship i mean it's different now because we're older and we've we've grown I mean, as in you've grown and I'm exactly the same. <laughs> but, 
but but we're slightly different people in that sense to how we were when we were 25 but like you know the the show came out of our friendship to begin with like I wanted to do a podcast with you because I thought we had some sort of yeah chemistry or x factor or whatever you want to call it when we were talking to each other and like we did get that on tape in a way that you just most people don't you know and that's a lovely thing for me to be able to listen back to Mm. And it's a horrible thing for me to listen back to because I hate myself so much. <laughs> but you sound good. I'm delighted to have played any part in bringing Helen Zaltzman to the world as a broadcaster. You know, wow. I don't, I don't know to what extent you'd be the person you are now if you hadn't been making this show. And honestly, I don't. That was a great thing to be able to to do for you. Never mind me. Thank you. I mean, I learned so much from you through doing it, not just about the lemons and the bloody Mary, Ollie. Yeah, <laughs> but that was important. What did you learn, Hutzper? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, a sort of gradual unfurling of confidence. Like mm. a little curled up piece of bracken, becoming a piece of bracken. And Martin, I know that you gave up a load of your free time as well. You have a great role on the show to provide scientific data and a useful editing point. But also, you gave up loads of your time. Back in the day when we were recording this once a week, you had a, a weekday job. And, you know, you, you didn't really want me in your house <laughs> that much. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I know that it frustrated you that... Evidently, so much of your brilliant musical work was in uh, comedy jingles for this show that you tossed off at the time. But they are good. Like, they're really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think you learned some stuff through doing those. You're like, well, I don't know if I can do, like, Electropop or a Pixies parody, but now I've learned I can. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, I can't imagine what my life would be like without Anthony Smith. It's either, like, when we started, I was... What was I doing? I was probably a struggling postdoc. And uh, I've since had and been an academic career for the life of an itinerant podcaster, and I don't think... I know that wouldn't have been possible without doing Answer Me This. We shouldn't do it by name because there's too many, but we should thank everybody mm. who's ever contributed a jingle or an ident uh, or come along. Yeah. yeah. Or been a guest. You know who you are. If you were in Helen Martin's house uh, circa 2010 and got a chicken dinner, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so we just want to reassure you, because uh, a lot of you have been asking, the show will stay up as is. So episodes 201 to 400 will still be there on our feed. Uh, answermethispodcast.com will still be there yes and episodes 1 to 200 and our 6 albums of bonus content will also remain at answermethisstore.com if future you is listening to this now and you've completed 201 to 400 that's the free content done you can listen to the first 200 episodes and our 6 exclusive albums at answermethisstore.com where you will also find a donate button that still works too oh yeah I still don't have a pension Um, (laughs) so um... it is Worth mentioning that obviously you are no longer contributing to the show in the sense that you're supporting the show being made in the future if you donate to us via Stripe or PayPal using that button. But what you are doing is still mainlining money to our bank account uh, and (laughs) supporting our work as independent podcasters and all the things we do. So I guess think of that now as a tip jar. If you have listened for the last 15 years and never paid us a penny... And had we done this as a live extravaganza, you would have paid £25 for a ticket and bought a beer and a T-shirt. Send us that money. We'd really appreciate it. Yeah. Or if you were thinking, well, I'll pay £50 for Damien Hurst's diamond skull. (laughs) But you know what? I'll throw it towards you instead. Doesn't have to be £50 No, and it doesn't have to be 50 quid. It could be a fiver. Anything's welcome. And um... Yeah, we really appreciate it. But also keep subscribed to the podcast just in case. You know, in 17 years' time, HBO might pay us each £2 quid to do a reunion show. With James Corden. Yes, and um, also I guess our Twitter feed, at Helen and Ollie, is our joint Twitter feed. Um, So if Helen and I ever do a project again together that isn't even a podcast, I suppose that's the first place we'd tell people about Mm. it. So stay following that. Uh, And then you can follow us all individually uh, using our names. 
I suppose all of them are a bit of a liability to spell, but uh, <laughs> all of the information about how to follow us is on our website, answermethispodcast.com. Oh, that was my last opportunity to join in and I fucked it. But I quite like that. <laughs> You're like, I'm already out. See you. The limo's at the door. <laughs> I'm off. Uh, in fact, let's talk about our exit strategies. So we, we all have other shows online. Yes. I do five other shows. Uh, they're all listed at ollieman.com. But the one you will have noticed that really is my exit strategy, I can sort of talk about this in honest terms now, because obviously when we decided behind the scenes that episode 400 would be the last one, I deliberately set about creating a new show uh, where I could entertain you if you like factual entertainment. So if if you like hearing me chatting to two friends digging around in pop culture and trivia, which I imagine you do if you're still listening to this now, then you will enjoy The Retrospectors. It is for you. Um, so please do check it out. The Retrospectors. Uh, it's 10 minutes a day and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And there are now 75 episodes for you to listen to. Brilliant. So wow. people can just get stuck in. So as if this bumper answer me this wasn't enough, that's a lot of minutes. That's 750 minutes of free more content for you. Yeah, that's uh, your new sleepy podcast. 10 minutes and then out like a light. Very nice. <laughs> I'll take it. A download, a download. Uh, Helen. I currently have two other podcasts, but shortly just to be one, because at Veronica Mars Investigations, we have completed recapping all of Veronica Mars, and now we are just trying to tidy up at the messy end. Uh, so that would just leave me with The Illusionist, which is an entertainment show about language, which is really very good. It is. It is. It'll change Great the way you think too. about language. There's a lot of entertaining stuff. There was recently an episode about the word dude, for instance. There's a load of stuff about ladybird names. It's a good time. And uh, that is at theillusionist.org and then the podcast places. And then I don't know what I'm going to do. I need to uh, I need to build my exit strategy, but I was too busy producing this show, which everyone thinks <laughs> Martin produces. Just because he switched on the fucking mics once 14 and a half years ago. I mean, to be fair, I've never claimed that I, claimed that I edited Answer Me This, but I switched on the mics. But if you want to hear more of Martin on podcasts that he has produced... There's a podcast I make about the music of Tom Waits, which is called Song by Song. Um, there's a podcast which is a fiction podcast which changes every day. There's a few episodes, but each episode sort of morphs subtly each day. That's called Neutrino Watch. So that's sort of an experimental fiction podcast. And I also make a, made a podcast last year called Maddie Sound Explorer. So if you're a parent, uh, it's a musical science podcast for kids, but it's designed to be not completely unbearable <laughs> to the parent listening along with the child. So that's called Maddie Sound Explorers. Just look for all of those in your, in your podcatcher. But we will always live listeners in your brains and hearts and other organs. I thought you were going to say we will always love you there. I thought you were going to do the full quivering voice. <laughs> I hope life treats you kind. Um, uh, there's, there's no way to end this, so we better just end it. Um, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, here's a fact. I've, I've got one final fact for you that you may not know. The British Library once wrote to me and asked me if they could have a copy of every episode of Answer Me This on an SD card for their archive of uh, important works. Wow. So I can't remember what episode we were up to when I sent them it at the time, but obviously this one won't be in it. Um, or maybe it is in the future if you're listening in the British Library. Um, so uh, you can take comfort in the fact, if you feel like maybe you've wasted your time listening to 400 episodes of this waffle, uh, that uh, someone at the British Library thought it was of cultural significance. So you're not alone. <laughs> And maybe in a few hundred years' time, your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren will be looking at that SD card in a museum. Yeah, and claiming that they invented podcasting because they went round to your house and you had a bust of Sherlock Holmes. Well, it's been a hell of a ride. Now it's time to get off. Yeah, thanks thanks for the questions. Thanks for the memories. Yeah. Thanks for the answers, Ollie. Bye-bye. Bye! -bye. Bye.
Bye. Bye. Bye. Take care. Bye. 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 Love you guys. Bye bye. Cheers. Bye. 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 Take care. Bye. Miss you guys already. Bye. Take care. Thanks again. Bye bye. 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 Goodbye. Stay well. Love you. Bye. Bye. Where am I going to find out the answer to things now? I don't know what to do. Help. Bye for now. Thank you very much and goodbye. Okay. I'm out. We'll miss you very much. Bye. I love you all. Brilliant. Bye. 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 Can I come out now? Where's everybody gone? Helen? Ollie?